So I'll just get into this point now in my talk where I was talking a little bit about the numbers of letters and trying to suggest that my mother represented a kind of curious point of view. We construct certain visions about how we understand things. And just as it might be the case that um, she had a slightly um, hyperbolic view as to how the past might have been in terms of Victorian letter writing and Edwardian letter writing, it might also be the case that if you look at the volumes of email carefully, you find the other sorts of difficulties. So if you look, in fact, at Bill G, Bill G turns out, we did a little look at this, about 3,000 emails a day. Now, most of these emails are people complaining about capitalism or wanting to reap the rewards of capitalism by being given money. And Bill Gates does actually perform that particular capitalist function quite well. On average, I don't get that sort of figure. I get much less. But it also, it turns out that if you look at other figures, if you look, for example, at Ofcom figures, if you look at Ofcom figures for SMS, vast volumes of SMSs are being shared, sent, received. But if you try and break them down to the individuals, it's not a great deal. One of the problems here you have is data's too rough. You can't really get a grasp of what's going on. And it gets a little bit worse. Okay. If my complaints with my colleagues at coffee time is I don't have enough time, and email's a burden, maybe we could think about what the problems might be, this problem, whatever this problem might be, in terms of another question, how much time do we have? And then what do you find if you look at the time measures, if you see what I mean, people who actually calculate how much time we have? Well, there's lots of things you find out. And one of the things you find out is that we don't really have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time for things which don't seem other than kind of awkwardly fixed, like, Look how much time we do nothing. Look how much time we spend doing sleeping and resting. And look at how much time we spend doing domestic work. And then if you look at other curious things, if you look at travel, the percentage of time we spend going to and from has been pretty much the same for years and years. Now, it does happen to be the case, and this, in my book, that much of this is taken from, I show some of the tables that show that we have much more free time than we used to. But one of the problems the time measures have who try and calculate and determine what free time consists of is polychronicity. Gershuni is a kind of doyen of this particular approach. And he gets really, really grumpy. And one of the reasons why he gets grumpy is because he asked people to do these surveys for him. And the survey data is absolute rubbish. It's even worse than my mother's assertions about letter writing. And the reasons why it has to do with that are for obvious sorts of reasons. He asked people to keep a log of how much time they do, for example, TV watching. He also asked them to keep a log of how much time they talk to their friends, do sociality, for example. And what he discovers, unsurprisingly, is that people are fairly simple in their filling out the forms. They will watch telly from 7.30 to 9, and then they'll have a 20-minute moment when they'll do talking, and then they'll do 40 minutes of tidying up themselves before going to bed. In other words, the way they present themselves is fantastically tidy. They don't say, oh, I had 17 texts whilst I was watching Xbox, uh, X Factor. They tied it up. But in any case, if you read the stuff I've been reading, if you think about who's been complaining and who's complaining about lack of time, there's another separate issue, which is quite curious. Um, those in the data who do seem to be spending more time than, other, than on communication than other people, for example, 20s and teenagers, they're not the ones complaining. Those of you who are parents, 
in fact, probably not even half of you here are parents, will know, as a biographical example of this, I complain to my daughter that she spends too much time on Facebook, too much time texting, too much time watching the telly whilst holding a Blackberry in her hand and doing, in her hand and doing instant messaging. She doesn't complain she has too much time. No, the people who are complaining are people like me. It's academics. As if something about our life is such that merely communicating is a pain in the ass. Merely keeping in touch with friends, merely dealing with email from work colleagues is nothing more than vexatious. And we look at our teenagers, our kids, and at 20-year-olds and lament what foolishness they must be leading themselves towards. Turkle is right, we're thinking. Is that so? Right, let's try and theorise this a bit better then. Let's take a little bit of mirth from another discipline, media studies, communications studies. I did my, not my undergraduate degree, but my postgraduate degrees in sociology. And sociology in, in North America, where I spent much of my time, is a kind of dying trade. It's been replaced by communications and media studies for all sorts of reasons. But one of the reasons why it's been replaced is because the fantastic simplicity of this way of thinking about things. It's appealing, it's easy to teach, it's easy to get funding for. And one of the reasons they do it is they answer these sorts of questions and questions related to our particular topic. And they try and define how you can measure what people consume when they get communicated to. Famously, Dasila Paul wrote a paper that they process words in a certain kind of calculation. He came up with some experimental studies that a large population proved that on average people can process 240 words a minute. And then more recently, Newman et al. wanted to ask this question of, well, are these dudes who complain about overload right? How might you measure it? So they did a study, and they studied homes, and they listed all the words that came in, made a matrix of all the ways those words came in, through your eyes, through your ears, on the back of packets, newspapers, via the internet and search engines, and what do they find? That we're overloaded. That seems rather strange. Seems kind of obvious, but it's not so obvious. And another book, I wanted to bring this book because it's a bit old, but I still get vexed when I see arguments like that one, um, about how you might measure overload. If you look at how people read in the workplace, or oh, let me go back. When I first started my research career at Xerox, Xerox was really interested in the paperless office. And one of the arguments that was then being proposed, this was quite a long time ago, was that paper offered a resolution for the imprinted letters, which was better than it was on screens. And it had a wider viewing angle, those other things like that, than you could then on screens. But there would be a moment when screens would be equal to paper. And you could de demarcate that by noting at which moment people read words as quickly on paper as they did on screens. Seems reasonable. It also sounds remarkably like de Sula Poole's argument about how you understand communication. So we thought, let's have a look. What does reading look like? Now, most of you are either students or academics. Now let me warm you up to this. If you're an academic and you see a colleague write a book, what do you do? Do you start at the beginning? No, you don't. You start at the back. What are you doing? You're looking for yourself. You start at the back because you want to see if you've been referenced. Then you look at the chapter's titles. Then you might possibly read through it. What I'm trying to suggest is perhaps the idea of linear reading might be a little bit awry. If you look at people working 
in the workplace reading, what will you find? You will find that people hardly ever read any document on their desk in a linear fashion. And more importantly, you'll almost never find them doing so without having something else at hand. They're reading a report from, say, the college master about finances in relationship to a spreadsheet on another document. They're cross-referring. And, they, and in addition to that, it nearly always involves making notes, scribbling. The speed with which you, your eyes can caress words has very little to do with the work. Surely it's a factor, but it's not the crucial one. In other words, the idea that you might unpack questions like, we're overloaded, by counting, is perhaps a little bit unhelpful. Now let me give you another example, show my vexatiousness. In another book we wrote some years ago, and this was written, um, this one, uh, primed by, for example, at this particular time, the idea that people internet TV would transform the viewing experience. So what we thought we would do is do so-called ethnographies, hanging out in people's homes, looking at ourselves. And what do you do? When they, people come home and switch the telly on, are they consuming? Are they digesting the words, the information, the content? Well, maybe some, but most of the people that we examined, most of us, I would suggest, too, switch the telly on to switch themselves off. They're not consuming anything except their irritation of the day's affairs. They switch the telly on so as to let their mind unwind. They transition from the agitation of work, where you whinge about the things you devise, which is my job, whinge about communications and yet devise communications, and transform yourself into this thing called, in my case, apparently a benign father, which is fairly rare according to my children's point of view. The point here is that, what's the problem? What's the thing that's being described? How might you account for it? What might you say about TV? You're watching too much? Are you watching too much because you need to unwind too much? Are you really watching it, or is it just wallpaper? What's the issue? Now, let me go back to my little preamble before we got going with images, I'm going around a little journey, a little dead ends. I'm trying to tease you into an agitated mind, partly agitated with me, but partly, hopefully, more importantly, agitating you to think carefully about some of the things that we're talking about and we'll get to. And what I've been trying to set up here is this... Um, is and account for the, the cacophony of our current lives. We are convinced that we're overloaded. I sit at the breakfast table with my tiddler Tatham, who was 10 the other week, and I read the back of the Frosty's packet with him every morning. And every morning he says, Dad, why do you read that every morning? Is it different? And I say, I don't know why I read it, son. But I do know why I read it, because I'm getting myself warmed up. But when I read it and I look up and think, oh no, I'm going to be late. He's going to be late. He's going to shout at me because he's going to be late. I think, even myself, that I'm rushed. There's too much, too much information, too many messages. It's a measure of ourselves. It's what we say of ourselves. Okay. So, I've used a kind of curious phrase here. Let's, let's think about it another way. We've been thinking about the thing that might be consumed, possibly. Words. And I've suggested if you look at what people do, then the consuming of words seems a somewhat distracting way of thinking about it. 
If we're thinking about communications and communications overload, these vexations, lots of people write about it. Think about Clay Shirky. Clay Shirky is the kind of doyen of the social connection world. He's always the dude who does the keynotes at the social computing events. Um, if you read his book, if you read, for example, um, I can't remember the name of it now, but the 2007 book, he doesn't say much about the people who communicate. He kind of ignores them. They could be, they could be automatons, they could be machines, except they have these three characteristics, and the characteristics seem sort of inane. Who's not a little vain? Who's not desirous sometimes of a bit of laughter? Who's not sometimes foolish and vain enough to think you might be virtuous? So you look at that literature and you think, Ooh, they say communication is good for us. They never they talk about the communications overload, but they don't seem to say much about the soul, the person. And then look at sociology. Read, for example, Castell's work. I don't know how many of you are sociologists. This is highly regarded in sociology. And it has to be said that sociology is not really about the human at the heart of society. It's about the fabric that binds them. But you would have thought that someone who's interested in communication networks and how they are transforming might say something about the people that do the connecting. You read Castells, you'd never know why anyone would say hello or why they might say hello on any network. Nothing, really, on human nature. So, what about in the sciences? The hard sciences. Well, there, some of you will be more familiar with this. The machine metaphor. Now, what I want to do here is, uh, if I can get this cleared. Um, let me just get a video up if I can. Now, this video, hopefully it's got the sound will work. Um, is real, and it's of a researcher in the 1960s. And he was interested in precisely what sounds like the same problem that I've been talking about, which is overload. So let's see if we can get it working. Unfortunately, this is, this is all we could get, and it sort of starts rather, rather suddenly. Sound? Business is the unusually permissive atmosphere and the interest in ideas. But their work isn't all desk work, as shown by this experiment on the attention span needed for safe driving. The experimenter is a director, psychologist John Senders. Driving along a section of Route 128, and I'm trying to get an estimate of the demand driver by this particular section of road. The speed of the car is constant, and as the road varies, from moment to moment in the demand that it makes upon me, I must look more often or less often, as the case may be. The visor completely occludes my view during the period that it's down, and I must rely on some stored image or memory of what the road was before the visor went down. The half-second look that I have is enough to restore all the information that I should need in order to drive down the road. The records that we get of the time between looks at the road give us a direct measure of the difficulty presented to the driver by the road from moment to moment as we drive down it. The shorter the interval between looks, the more difficult that segment of road is to drive. 
On those periods, as you saw, where the interval was very long, the road was indeed easy. The interval then gives us a direct and quantitative measure of this rather elusive thing called difficulty. Okay, Dada. Uh, sorry about not getting the good sound. Let me summarise that bizarreness. This is a real fellow doing real science, and the science he was doing is still foundational to certain information theoretic approaches in psychology, and it's also foundational to a lot of ergonomics and factors, which has consequences for the design of road layout systems, even on the Oxford bypass. What he was doing was just saying that think of a human as an information processor just like my colleagues do on Monday mornings when they whinge about their inability to process email. If that's the case, you might assess how much processing load the mind goes through, the brain goes through in various ways. One is how much attention is demanded by the visual aspect of the processing system. So what he devised was a system where he sits and he would drive and he'd have his left foot pressing a pedal, and a, and a mask would come down over his eyes when he didn't need to see. When he did need to see, he would take his foot off, and he would accelerate the car with his right. And this was objective science, because he did this on a freeway in Boston. And he did this so that you say, well, I know I can do this safely, because I know what I need to see. So in between junctions, there's nothing to process, or not much. I just need to reaffirm that I'm on the right lane and no one's coming into me, so I can keep this thing down long. As I come to junctions and I need to process more objects, signs, and other cards coming past me, my left foot works more because I need that up more. I need it up more. And he proved, um, not in that particular instance, that there is a correlation between the attention you give to your visual processing signal and the kinds of things that you're processing. It seems entirely straightforward, very reasonable. And indeed, um, this remains very important in, uh, in my trade. Let me go back to them. As it happens, that was my father-in-law. Still does that business, in fact. It's very good for various things. So for example, I was talking a little bit at the beginning. Do bear with me, I'm not running too slowly. Um, for example, sensory input, you can do very clever and careful and precise monitoring for how you can process things like auditory and tactile output. Lots of HDI benefits from that. But for our concerns, email between people, when my daughter's Facebooking, is that a processing problem in that particular way? Well, those of you who are foolish enough to read stuff from the 1940s, think of Norbert Wiener. Think of the last chapter in that book. Those of you who get there, what's that chapter about? That chapter says that <clears throat> you must think of human communication in terms of processing. And the problem with modern society is that there's too much information and the human brain can't understand it. That's why we bugger things up. That's the essence of his argument in the last chapter. Now think of more recent work like this, signaling theory. They argue that all we are are devices making signals to each other, and the problem is mapping the signaling to the correct interpretations, Penland's case, on his signals. Is that right? Is that, is that the way of thinking about these things? Is that how I should think about my daughter? Is that how I should think about my colleagues when they whinge? Is that how I should think about myself when I whinge? Is that how I should think about society and its complaints? 
is that how I should think about my mother when she said to me, write a letter? That leads me on to this then. Let's think about letters. This American historian wrote a book about a really boring subject, letters in the 1840s and 50s. And his argument is very curious and I think quite cogent. It's kind of a cultural practice argument, but nevertheless, he said that when people write letters, the thing about writing a letter, it doesn't stand as a proxy for you not being together. What a letter does, it does something different. It lets you do something. Whispered intimacies is the beginning of it, but it does something more than that. It transforms the relationship between the sender and the recipient. It's not like me and Lambros chatting. If I send a letter to Lambros, my relationship with him is thus altered somehow because something's happened, which, this is Henkin's phrase, something's almost transcendental. Now, he's very careful to say, I don't want to be pretentious about it, but there's some kind of magic in the bonds that are created by the written letter. And that's not really, he's trying to suggest, and I'm trying to coax you into believing this is true. Also, how we might think about all sorts of communication. And if you think about it in other ways, you perhaps might be missing it. His claim is that the magic of letters that my mum said I should indulge in and experience when I left is the magic that ended up motivating me to start do, using email and motivated me to start sending SMSs when I was courting my current, or my, my wife. Um, that the written word, enveloped in various sorts of ways, creates something magical. But, if it's the case that there was a sensibility here, is it really the case that you could account for all the communications channels that we currently have this way? Blogs, for example? Where's the whispering in blogs? Where's the transcendental binding of two souls, a communion of a pair? Hmm. Seems a little difficult. So, if you look at blogs, about 10 years ago, eight years ago, six years ago, there's real excitement about blogs, and you still still hear people talking about this, which is that the blog advocates will claim that when you speak, you do blog speak, and blog speak is fresh, is truthful. So if you work for Microsoft, for example, before blogs, you'd have to toe the, the corporate line, and the corporate line is the big evil monster called Microsoft. After blogs, People like me on side Microsoft could just say the truth. And by saying the truth, everyone would discover Microsoft's a totally cool organization with totally cool products. This is what one might interpret these arguments as being saying. But if you look carefully at what you find in blogs, if you look at the blogosphere, not only is it hugely diverse, but you might say that in the general, it's these sorts of things. It's passionate, it's ill-judged, it's off the cuff, it's vituperative, it's gossip, it's ephemeral. Hmm. Going back to that stuff about Henkin, it's good curious, isn't it? Another guy who's been writing on the cis sort of subject is a guy called John Darren Peters, and I, generally speaking, don't really like cultural theory, but this particular book, I think, is wonderfully interesting. His claim is fairly straightforward. He argues that communications technologies, whatever they might be, create a kind of metaphysics related to what the communication act enables and who the actors are. One metaphysics with a written paper and thus also other signs of metaphysics. One of the interesting little anecdotes he suggests or claims is that words like solipsism were derived from and conjured by the invention of the telephone. 
with the telephone, you couldn't see, you couldn't touch, you couldn't feel, you could only hear. And that gave the impression that what human nature was, was a voice inside a little space, solipsistically calling out to another voice inside a skull. And the word solipsism, so he argues, was conjured around that kind of imagination. Now, is that the case? Let me rush forward. Hmm. Let's look at some technology of my own. Put myself here. Now, I mean, I'm going to do this rather quickly because we're running out of time. One of the problems you feel like um, people like me in my, my world might want to address is overload, as I, as I say. How might you address that? Well, let's do this quickly. When you look at somebody, you see if they're busy. If they are busy, you walk away. If they're not busy, you say, ah, can you talk to me? Now, when you're together, that's very straightforward. You can walk around the office, you can walk around your colleagues, you can see students falling asleep, you can see students listening, you can see who's attending, who's not, and thus you can make decisions. What happens if you could make something like that similar with a mobile phone? On mobile phones, here's a Windows 7 phone. Most of you have never seen a Windows 7 phone. When you make a phone call, your hello is sent to someone that you don't really know if they're busy or not. So you're kind of interrupting them, vexing them just by saying hello. But normally in face-to-face -face conduct, you'd see if it's appropriate to say hello. So we came up with the idea of a phone that would let you see to decide whether it's a good idea to phone. And this is called a glance phone. And I bought a couple of glance phones here. Now what a glance phone does is very simple. It's a normal phone with video capacity. If you're busy, you put your phone in a glance phone mode. Let me give you some scenarios we use to justify the budget. So here, on the top left, here's me in my office chatting with a colleague. And what I want to do is I don't want to be interrupted. So I put my phone in a glance phone mode. And I do that by sliding down this bit at the back which would normally allow you to take pictures. And instead of the pictures functioning at the back functioning, the front camera functions. And in addition to that, I can put my phone like that. So it becomes like a webcam. And I can sit in that meeting, for example, and if someone wants to phone me, they can't phone me, they can glance. So what happens, they phone my number, and it comes back and says, you can glance. You say, yes, I want to glance. You click it. Then this phone whispers the name of the caller, and the caller is, gets a picture taken, and it goes whoosh, and it takes a bitmap image, which is just sent as an MMS to the recipient, and they can see. Now, whether you're busy or not. So it seemed quite a good idea. We've got money to build it. We even persuaded my bosses that we should build it on Nokia phones, which was quite an achievement. Anyway, uh, what happened when we did the trial? You don't know about the technology. Um, let me rush. Well, a thousand glances were made in this particular trial. What we found was that um, nobody used the glance phones to manage interruption. One person, in fact, sent the glance phones back because, and I quote, he's too busy, they keep interrupting me. But people in the trial really enjoyed using them. But they had some peculiar properties. What would happen was someone would phone up someone with a glance phone and not make the glance, because that person's glance phone wasn't a glance phone, but it was in their pocket, but you'd hear that a glance had been attempted, so it would say, Lambros tried to glance. So you pick it up, and you'd know Lambros had tried to glance, and after two or three weeks, participants of the study knew that if Lambros had tried to glance, it wasn't because he wanted to glance at me, it's because he wanted me to glance at him. He had something worth glancing at. So what you would get is people summonsing people to glance at. So instead of this scenario, which was the scenario we had in mind, me looking bored in my office, but concentrating, please don't interrupt me. 
me and listening to a visitor, someone doing some coding, me in a meeting, for example. We didn't get hardly any of that after two or three more days. What we got was a lot of these images. People would want to be glanced because he'd finished a paper and had gone down the pub. So he wanted everyone in the workplace and all of his mates to glance at him because he was drinking. And she was on a train meant to be going to a conference, but in fact she'd end up in a bar. And this was a guy showing that he was taking his girlfriend to an expensive restaurant and everyone knew that he never took his girlfriend out to any restaurant, let alone the most expensive restaurant in town. So what he was trying to do was say, look at this. In other words, they were using glance phones not to manage the problem of overload, but to do something else, to say something about themselves. Our technology, which we thought we were designing to help manage this problem, got corrupted into something that charmed the users. It made them for, offered them new reasons to communicate, a perplexing kind of consequence, but perhaps also a good thing. What's wrong with new reasons to communicate? A number of things. This is why I need to move ahead. What we discovered with the glance phones was an example of a paradox. And the paradox has to do with our complaints about communications overload, and yet the desire, for example, myself and my colleagues, to make new communications technologies, and yet the same, similar desire for, new, for people to adopt new technologies. Even when they're complaining about new communications channels, when you're complaining about having too much to do, too many ways of expressing, yet they will adopt them. Facebook doesn't replace channels, has not replaced any communications channels. People instant message more than ever on their Blackberries, and they Facebook. The paradox is that people seem to delight in more, not less. They might complain about overload, but it's not really overload. That's really the issue. The issue is perhaps something else. They want more ways to express. The overload might be a name for not this way. We'll come back to that. But two kind of main things. One is that the expression of a new form but it also altered the sense of the participants of each other. Look who I am, see who I am. I am not only a person taking out my partner to an expensive restaurant, but I'm the kind of person who likes to be glanced at. I'm transformed possibly how you might think I am. I'm a dowdy computer scientist, and look, I like to be glanced at. I might be stinky, so you won't be too close, but I am proud enough to be looked at. Hitherto, you would not have been able to say that sort of thing. You would not be able to communicate it. But there was also a moral order to this. In other words, you could do it wrongly, you could do it rightly. There were good and bad ways of using glance phones, inappropriate ways, inappropriate times. The ways of doing it which were affectionate, ways which were doing it offensive. Now that, it seems to me, is likely to apply with all sorts of communication. How do we judge such acts? So this is my peroration. There's a dude for you. Don't even know who he is. So, my title of my talk is Creative Expression, Human Expression. When people are communicating, how do we think about it? And part of the problem we have when we think about it is we set up our answer with reference to certain sorts of topics, certain leet motifs of how we think about things. So if you think about how people express and communicate, the first thing that comes to your mind is not an answer to why or how or what they get from it. Oh, they're doing it too much. It frames how you think about things. 
and now trying to tease back and start thinking about it. And there's lots of ways you might actually think about it in more calm light. For example, you might think about it as an exchange, a thing. This is what Weiner thinks. This is what the signaling theorists think. Sometimes it's decoding. Exchanging stuff needs some decoding. The question then is the decoding of what, why? Now, surely it is the case that when people communicate, sometimes they do have something to exchange. I've got some gossip. I have some tales. I have a review of your book I want to give you. But think, does that account for all the communications we might have? Think about what we're trying to suggest that Henkin was suggesting, that something's transformative in the character of the relationship of those involved. What was my mother implying when she admonished me? Why do people summon glances? We communicate for all sorts of reasons. One of the problems we have is the words that we use and the analytical concepts. So, cognitive scientists might talk about coding, the signaling processing people might talk about coding, but when partners are courting, when lovers are loving, coding is a problem. They do have a problem of figuring that out. But what's the, way, the best way of trying to answer that? Is the best way of trying to invoke some kind of scientific method, or is the best way to think about how lovers themselves solve it? What are the motivations behind these sorts of things? So, chatting, passing the time of day, being courteous, entrancing, entertaining, all these are things we do, but they're not the same things, are they? So it's a doing, that's what I'm trying to say, and it's performative, and it's bound up with a moral order. The problem here is that that moral order sounds incredibly prosaic, everyday, mundane, within the world in which we exist, and surely can't be as good as more analytical techniques like the one offered by de Serlepool or Weiner or my father-in-law. But perhaps not, not for the topic I set up. It seems perfectly reasonable to address certain sorts of human performances in other sorts of ways, but this one? What are the properties of a text? Now we go, I'm only going to go on for a few more minutes. An SMS has lots of properties. And one of the more important is that it only arrives in one place. It arrives in your pocket. And where's your pocket? It's close to you. It's private. It's a whisper. It's intimate. Why is it then that SMS is such a valuable tool for friendship? Why is it then that SMS is such a valuable tool for loving? Because of its characteristics. And its characteristics can be leveraged in the ways in which you use them. And a letter? What is a letter? Goodness, if my mother wrote me a letter, and she's still alive, letter, why would she be writing me a letter? It must be pregnant with something so important that she would have to write it down and send it that way. Not a phone call. In other words, a letter, by dint of being written, is pregnant with something more than the mere contents. A phone call, a Facebook posting, particular connections, but... If the theory here is I'm saying that one have performative values, there's awkwardnesses here. Facebooking. Facebooking sounds like a social network site. That's how people talk about it. That's how various commentators write about it. But if you look at Facebook usage and, say, look at school kids, teenagers and university users at Facebook, 
Is Facebook about making connection? No. Facebook is the opposite. If you look at, say, teenagers and kids in particular, Facebook is the vehicle that lets you stay with your buddies from school, from down the road, even when you're in bedroom, but it allows you to do something else. It allows you to exclude mum and dad. Mum and dad might think they have rights to your Facebook, but you can easily defriend them or allow them not to see. And the genius of Facebook is not that it's social, it's antisocial. So one of the problems that we have, even when we think about communications as being performative acts, is that some communications are meant to be punitive. Some communications are designed so as to exclude. And some of the latest communications, like Facebook, succeed precisely because they actually end up doing the opposite from what some people think. And it's bound up to be even more complicated in terms of how we judge these sorts of things. And this is getting back to the beginning of my argument. That strange contrast between our complaints to my colleagues and I, and some of my professional colleagues who'd write papers about this sort of subject, and how we actually practically think in common sense terms about the decision and about the experiences of different sorts of emails. When I get sent an email from a colleague at work, I might have never heard of that colleague. But what I do is I check, oh, it's a Microsoft colleague. I have to respond. One of the properties you have, one of the burdens you have as a professional in corporate life, as you might do in other institutions, is abide by the kind of idea of kind of corporate compliance. I will ask, answer questions to people in my company because they think I might know it. And if I don't know it, I should say I don't know, but if I do know it, I should share it with them. They have a moral right to ask things of me by dint of us working together. But if I get a work, if I get a work email sent to me at home, I think, why, what's going on there? Something different's going on. There's a really complex and subtle and sophisticated different ways in which you use and fabricate a sense of this. That when we think of communication, when we think of different ways of communication, when we think of what's being done in our acts of communication, we start thinking about all these sorts of things. And the result is vastly more complicated than you might ordinarily think. So, if you want to start thinking about countings, actually, it does matter sometimes. How many cards do you need to send at Christmas time to keep in touch with your family? Just one? More than one? Every year? To the siblings that have left? You know, all those sorts of things. How many times do you need to tell your partner that you love them, still love them? the number of times you say these things matter? Yeah, it does in some instances. It does depend on the particular communications act in question. The long and short of it is that you judge. Are those judgments scientifically robust? No. Are they better than the offerings that science might try and deploy to explain such things as human communication? Yes, they are, I want to suggest. And but they have a different authority to them. The authority is in terms of how we are within the world that lets us judge those kinds of judgments I've illustrated and that lets us do this. Create a texture of bonds between ourselves that we adroitly manufacture. Some of the bonds are tight, some of them are very tenuous, some of them are negative, pushing apart. Some of them bring us together in new ways and some of them are inviolate. If I meet someone, it doesn't matter in what channel or mode, 
if I declare something about a potential friendship or admit become friends, whenever that person communicates to me, whatever channel, wherever, 20 years later, I'm obliged to respond. So the magic of communication is it creates society even across time. Even if that, through that time there might be total silence. The wonders of the texture are rich and vast and diverse. And the trick here is the last bit, how creative we are when we do that. <laughs>